Okay, welcome back. Next up, we have Ruth Ware, who was born in Sussex in 1977. She went to school in Lewes and Brighton and studied English at the University of Manchester and then moved to Paris to teach English. She now lives in North London with her husband and two children and attempts to divide her time between writing, child wrangling and work as a publicist. When not busy with one of the above, she can usually be found with her nose in a book alongside working in publishing for many years. In a Dark, dark Wood is her debut thriller. Find out more at her website. Please welcome to the stage, Ruth Ware. Um, so, hi, yeah, I'm going to be reading from um, my debut thriller, In a Dark, Dark Wood, uh, which is about um, a murder on a hen night. Um, <laughs> I think every single woman I've spoken to has said, um, I just didn't know why there hasn't been a murder on a hen night already. Apparently there hasn't. I think it's quite an original idea, but anyway. Um, the setup is my main character, Nora, gets um, an email out of the blue from a woman she hasn't spoken to in years, who used to be her best friend. And she's kind of reluctant to go. She, you know, it's bringing up a lot of past. There's some bad blood between them, but you don't find out what that is straight away. Um, and the story's told in two timelines. Um, so part of it's at the hen night, and the other half is Nora waking up in hospital. Um, 24 hours afterwards and something terrible has happened but she can't initially remember what it is um, and she starts to believe that she's involved in what's happened. Um, so I'm going to read you a short section from um, each timeline. So this, this is after she's had the invitation and accepted it. November came round frighteningly quickly. I did my best to push the whole thing to the back of my mind and concentrate on work, but it became harder and harder as the weekend approached. I ran longer routes, trying to make myself as tired as possible when I went to bed. But as soon as my head hit the pillow, the whispers started. Ten years after everything that happened. Was this a huge mistake? If it hadn't have been for Nina, I would have backed out, but somehow, come the 14th, there I was, bag in hand, stepping off the train at Newcastle into a cold, sour morning, with Nina beside me, smoking a roll-up cigarette and grumbling for England as I bought coffee from the kiosk on the station platform. This was her third Hindu of the year, and she'd spent the best part of 500 quid on the last one. And this one would be more like a grand once you took into account the wedding itself. Exhale. Honestly, she'd rather write them a cheque for a ton and save herself the annual leave. And please, as she ground the butt out under her heel, remind her again why she couldn't bring Jess. Because it's a hen night, I said. I scooped up the coffee and followed Nina towards the car park sign. Because the whole point is to leave partners at home, otherwise why not bring the fucking groom and have done with it? I never swear much except with Nina. She brings it out of me somehow. It's like this sweary inner me is in there waiting to be let out. Do you still not drive? Nina asked as we swung our cases into the back of the hired Ford. I shrugged. It's one of the many basic skills of life I've never mastered, sorry. Huh, don't apologise to me. 
she folded her long legs into the driver's seat, slammed the door and stuck the keys in the ignition. I hate being driven. Driving's like karaoke. Your own is epic. Other people's is just embarrassing or alarming. Well, it's just, you know, living in London, a car seems like a luxury rather than a necessity, don't you think? I don't know. I use zip car to visit mum and dad. Hmm. I looked out of the window as Nina let in the clutch. We did a brief bunny hop across the station car park before she sorted it out. Well, Australia's a bit of a trek in a Volvo, I said. Oh, God, I forgot your mum emigrated with... Oh, what's his name? Your stepdad? Philip, I said. Why do I always feel like a sulky teenager when I say his name? It's a perfectly normal name. Nina shot me a sharp look and then jerked her head at the sat-nav. Stick that on, would you? Put in the postcode Flo gave us? It's our only hope of getting out of Newcastle alive. Westerhope, Throckley, Stainegate, Holtwistle, Walk. The signs flashed past like a sort of poetry, the road unfurling like an iron-grey ribbon flung across the sheep-cropped moors and low hills. The sky overhead was clouded and huge, but the small stone buildings that we passed at intervals huddled into the dips in the landscape as if they were afraid of being seen. I didn't have to navigate, and reading in a car makes me feel sick, so I closed my eyes, shutting out Nina and the sound of the radio, alone in my own head with the questions that were nagging there. Why me, Claire? Why now? Was it just that she was getting married and wanted to rekindle an old friendship? But if so, why hadn't she invited me to the wedding? She'd invited Nina so clearly it couldn't be a family-only ceremony. Claire shook her head in my imagination, admonishing me to be patient, to wait. Claire always did like secrets. Her favourite pastime was finding out something about you and then hinting at it, not spreading it around, just veiled references in conversation References that only you and she understood. References that let you know. I want to sleep, but they shine lights in my eyes. They test and scan and print me and take away my clothes, stiff with blood. What's happened? What have I done? I'm wheeled down long corridors, their lights dimmed for the night past wards of sleeping patients. Some of them wake as I pass, and I can see my state reflected in their shocked faces, in the way they turn their heads away, as if from something pitiable or horrifying. The doctors ask me questions I can't answer, tell me things I can't remember, and then, at last, I'm hooked up to a monitor and left, drugged and bleary and alone, but not quite alone. I turn painfully on my side, and that's when I see, through the wire-hatched glass of the door, is a policewoman sitting patiently on a stool. I'm being guarded, but I don't know why. I lie there, staring through the glass at the back of the police officer's head. I want so badly to go out there and ask questions, but I don't dare. 
partly because I'm not sure if my woolly legs will carry me to the door, but partly because I'm not sure if I can bear the answers. I lie for what feels like a long time, listening to the hum of the equipment and the click of the morphine syringe driver. The pain in my head and legs dulls and becomes distant. And then at last, I sleep. I dream of blood spreading and pooling and soaking me. I'm kneeling in the blood. I'm trying to stop it, but I can't. It soaks into my pyjamas. It spreads across the bleached wood floor. And that's when I wake up. For a second, I just lie there with my heart pounding in my chest and my eyes adjusting to the dim nightlights of the room. I have a raging thirst and a pain in my bladder. There's a plastic cup on the locker just by my head and with a huge effort, I reach out and hook one trembling finger around the rim, pulling it towards myself. It tastes flat and plasticky, but my God, drinking never felt so good. I drain it dry and then let my head flop back on the pillow with a jar. For the first time, I realise there are leads coming out from under the sheets, connecting me to some kind of monitor, its flickering screen sending dim green shadows across the room. One of the leads is attached to a finger on my left hand, and when I lift it up, I see to my surprise that my hand is scratched and bloodied, and my already bitten nails are broken. I remember... I remember a car. I remember stumbling across broken glass. One of my shoes had come off. Beneath the sheets, I rub my feet together, feeling the pain in one and the swollen bulge of a dressing on the other. And across my shins, I can feel the stretch and pull of some kind of surgical tape. It's only when my hand strays to my shoulder, my right shoulder, that I wince and look down. There's a vast spreading bruise coming out from beneath the hospital gown, running down my arm. When I shrug my shoulder out of the neckline, I can see a mass of purple blooming out from a dark swollen centre just above my armpit. What could make such an odd one-sided bruise? I feel like the memory is hovering just beyond my fingertips, but it remains stubbornly out of reach. Have I had an accident? A car accident? Was I... Was I attacked? Whatever happened, it wasn't that. I lie back and shut my eyes. I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to remember. I'm tired of being afraid. And the syringe driver clicks and whirs and suddenly nothing seems as important anymore. It's just as I'm drifting off to sleep that an image comes to me. A shotgun hanging on the wall. And suddenly, I know. The bruise is a recoil bruise. At some point in the recent past, I have fired a gun. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. Okay, next up we have Jim Bob, who's a South London author of four novels, Storage Stories, Driving Jarvis, Ham, 
the extraordinary life of Frank Derrick, aged 81, and Frank Derrick's holiday of a lifetime, and also Goodnight Jim Bob. On the road with Carter, the unstoppable sex machine, and wet your pants funny autobiographical account of his 10 years as the singer of a chart-topping punk pop band. Find out more about J.B. Morrison at www.jimbob.co.uk. Welcome to the stage, please. Jim Bob. Thank you. I'll take this off. Um, okay, so the, my, past, my past two books have been about uh, a bloke in his 80s called Frank Derrick, and I'm going to read the beginning of the first one so I don't need to set it up at all. Uh, other than to tell you that uh, the book is about him, this is his, when he gets to meet Kelly Christmas, who's going to be his, his, his carer. Uh, and reading this, I also get to use this. On Frank Derrick's 81st birthday, he was run over by a milk float. He would have preferred a book token or some cufflinks, but it's the thought that counts. The milk float was travelling at about five miles an hour when the milkman somehow lost control of the slow-moving vehicle. Mounting the narrow pavement and coming to a stop, with the wheels of the milk float in the air on the low stone wall at the front of someone's garden, sending crates of milk, empty bottles, cartons of cream and a few dozen eggs sliding off the back and onto the pavement. Aside from making a mess of the garden of one of the expected big hitters in the upcoming Villages in Bloom competition, the milkman hadn't done Frank any favours either. He was underneath the vehicle. The only part of his body visible to the outside world was his right arm, sticking out from underneath the milk foam, his palm facing upwards, still holding onto the pint of milk float he'd just been to full wind food and wine to buy. It was exactly what the scene really needed, more milk. <laughs> the upended milk float protruding pensioner's arm and the steady stream of dairy produce floating down the gutter at the side of the road was like a spoof news story waiting for a punchline at the end of an episode of The Two Ronnies. Frank was in hospital for three days. He had concussion, a broken arm, an acute fracture of one of the metatarsal bones in his left foot. Like the footballers get, the doctor said, do you play football? Not anymore, not with this metatarsal injury. Well, anyhow, it should respond well to some fairly simple self-care techniques. Rice therapy, ice therapy, no, rice. I don't like rice, never have. No, rice, it's an acronym. Rest, ice, compression and elevation. An acronym, that's right, like the stroke one. Like the stroke one, the doctor said. I'll find you a leaflet. Frank also had a broken toe, the one next to his big toe, the little piggy that stayed at home, which was also his prognosis, to stay at home. He had a few cuts, some tire marks and bruising, and a face like squashed fruit. One or two of these cuts on your face may scar, the doctor said. When you get to my age, every cut is a scar, Frank said. Frank's right arm was in plaster from the wrist to just past his elbow. They'd set his arm at an angle, like in a cartoon. His arm would be stuck in a curve for at least six weeks. He looked like he was permanently trying to shake hands with everyone. If he'd sawed his arm off at the shoulder and thrown it, it would have come back. Before he left hospital, Frank had to take the mini mental state examination to check his cognitive state. A young and exhausted looking doctor in a striped shirt with a plain collar and sweat patches under just the left armpit pulled up a plastic chair next to Frank's hospital bed and flipped open an A4 pad of paper. Right, Frank, he said. This test is a standard test. Some of the questions are probably going to seem a bit easy and some of them less so. Are you ready? The doctor asked Frank what year it was, what season, what month, and the date and the day of the week. And Frank got them all right, although the doctor didn't say so. He just wrote stuff down and asked another question. What country are we in? 
England. What city? Technically, it's a town. You seem quite angry, Mr. Derrick. I was run over by a milkman. How's your day been? <laughs> yes, I see, the doctor said. I just want to go home before I catch MMSE. Uh, that stands for Mini Mental State Examination, Mr. Derrick. That's what we're doing now. I think you mean MRSA. What does that stand for? Deep breath, the doctor said, and he took a deep breath. Methicillin resistant Cephalococcus aureus. He smiled, pleased with himself, as though he'd successfully pronounced the name of that famous Welsh railway station. Now, shall we get to the end of the test? The doctor asked if Frank knew where he was, the name of the hospital, and what ward they were on, and Frank only passed on the name of the ward. The mastermind trophy was as good as in the bag. He was picturing a place for it on the mantelpiece next to three porcelain penguins. He'd never really liked that much. He was convinced the middle one was plotting a coup. Now, Frank, I'm going to name three objects, and I want you to re repeat them back to me and try to remember them, OK? Frank nodded. It hurt his head. Apple, pen, table, the doctor said. Apple, pen, table. The doctor asked Frank to spell world backwards, and Frank said something about how it certainly was a backwards world. The doctor asked him to subtract seven from 100 and then seven from the answer to carry on doing so till he told him to stop. And Frank made it as far as 51 and was a bit disappointed when the doctor said that was enough. He'd never been great at maths and thought that maybe the bang on the head had actually done him some good. <laughs> Can you tell me who the prime minister is, the doctor said. And Frank told the doctor who the prime minister was and that he thought he was an idiot and that he, for one, had definitely not voted for him. And the doctor said that wasn't important. Oh, but it's very important. Great, the doctor said, but he didn't mean that it was great at all, and he skipped a couple of questions to make the test end sooner. He wanted Frank to go home as well. The doctor wanted to go home. Everyone in the hospital wanted to go home. Who wants to be in a hospital? Can you remember the three objects I asked you to name earlier, the doctor said? You mean the apple, the pen, and the table? The doctor pointed at his wristwatch and asked Frank what it was. It looks like quite a cheap wristwatch. <laughs> the doctor wanted to punch Frank. If it wasn't so frowned upon in his profession, perhaps he would have done. There are a few more questions and a couple of physical tests, including folding a piece of paper and then unfolding it again, and writing a sentence on the piece of paper. Frank wrote, can I go home now, please? <laughs> Later that day, he was discharged from hospital. As the porter wheeled him to the lifts, the nurse handed him a walking stick that he tried to leave behind when she'd given it to him earlier, and a carrier bag containing his carton of milk. The milk had been out of the fridge for three days now, and it was warm and probably turned into cottage cheese. Frank thanked the nurse and planned on leaving the bag in the ambulance on the way home. After the accident, Frank's daughter offered to immediately drop everything and fly back from America to look after him. But Frank said there was no need. She had far more important things to do. She had her own life to live, her own family to look after. He'd be fine. It didn't even hurt that much. It was too far. Don't be silly. It would cost too much. What he really wanted her to do was hang up the phone and get a cab to the airport. Well, let me at least arrange for somebody to come and look after you, she said. I can look after myself. Well, let me do some research online, make a couple of phone calls, just to see what the options are. Really, there's no need. It would cost a fortune. I'm fine. I've had worse hangovers. Dad. Don't you have crime reconstruction shows in America? They'll tie me to a chair and steal my pension. Dad. They'll use my water tank as a toilet. Actually, that might be plumbers. Well, let me at least look into it for my peace of mind, Dad. I don't want to worry about whether you've got enough food or if you've set fire to the house making toast. Well, Frank carried carried on telling Beth why he didn't need any help and about not wanting strangers in his home, and she didn't interrupt. She let her dad complain because she knew it would make him feel better about the inevitable outcome, which was giving his daughter what she wanted. In this case, she wanted her dad to be safe and well. He ranted a bit more, and then he said, I'm not going to tidy up. I'm not lighting candles and brewing fresh coffee. Of course not, Beth said. 
The following day, a man with an annoying whistle from the care company screwed a key safe to the outside wall of Frank's flat. He put a front door key inside the safe and programmed Frank's birthday into the combination lock. Three days after that, in the middle of one of the hottest springs since records began, less than a month after Frank had finally got round to putting the fairy lights and tinsel back in the loft, Christmas came to full wind on sea. Thank you. Thank you, Jim Bob. Okay, next up. Daniel Ruiz Tyson managed to steer clear of drugs, unlike most of his peers, but any long-term health benefits have largely been undone by his basics-range diet of the 2008-2012 recession years. Writer and comedian, Daniel also presents radio comedy. Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available live on Resonance 104.4 FM, which returns for a third series on Monday the 5th of October at 10pm and sees him dissecting the minutiae of everyday life. He is reading an extract from the book he has just completed based on his acclaimed radio series last year, The Letter, People, Places, Loved and Lost, an elegy for his past comprised of six interlinking chapters. Follow him on Twitter. Please welcome to the stage, Daniel Riz Tyson. Thank you. Uh, this uh, particular piece is about my dad's uh, disappearance in uh, 2002. It was only when I was sat in our local police station 13 summers ago, staring at the A3 posters of my dad I was handing in to be circulated as I waited to report him missing, that I could finally see how alike we looked. My dad was good looking in an unusual long-faced kind of way that lended itself well to the 70s and specifically the mullet, but looked out of place in any other decade. My latest uh, sacking earlier that month, notable for seeing me escorted from the premises whilst wearing white chinos, meant I was operating on a tight budget, and as I sat in the waiting room on that hot August day, I fretted that the missing posters would rank among the cheapest the sergeant had ever seen. I had chosen the last of my dad's 18 consecutive night school enrollment card headshots to go on this missing poster. In 1984, just months before the Bucksphere's road crash that arguably curtailed the four-piece band's time at the top and perhaps saved Bob Geld off the thorny issue of whether to invite them on to sing on Band-Aid's uh, original Do They Know It's Christmas Time, my dad enrolled at night school and stayed there for 18 years. He did every evening course the local college had to offer until they ran out of subjects for him and kicked him out. For the last of his enrolment cards, my dad was wearing a mauve-coloured T-shirt that practically disappeared into the bare brickwork background the college had elected to go with for that year's admission cards, and only his grey temples prevented him from being swallowed up by the brickwork vista. Others had always seen the physical resemblance between us, but with several nose jobs my end put in distance between me and the more prominent nose on my dad's side of the family, and my pale for a southern Spaniard skin at odds with his all-year-round olive colour, I genuinely never picked up on how similar we looked. Madre mia, you look so much like your father, people invariably say when they run into me, usually looking startled and with a hand pressed to their head. That always seems to be the default look. It continues to discomfort me that I seem to remind people of the most awkward and difficult man they ever knew, a man that happened to have a face I felt distant from. As the face on the poster looked back at me, I struggled to process this new awareness that we looked pretty much the same. It was a massive moment in my life. 
My dad had been obsessed with me becoming a footballer. I, however, had my eye on a life in the priesthood. My dad wasn't having it. For years, he trained me several nights a week after school on Clapham Common, determined to wrestle my commitment from God. In the days before live football meant regular Sunday games for players at the top level, I figured that I might be able to combine playing for Liverpool with overseeing 10 o'clock mass on Sundays at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Clapham. Such duality would have kept both my dad and God happy. The common, as much as anything, placed a huge strain on our relationship. While it was his favourite place, my dad being one of those annoying outdoor types, I struggled with it. He didn't need to die on the common for it to be my least favourite place. I didn't like dogs and it's never been possible to walk across that park in a straight line without running into dog muck. Much to my dad's frustration, I'd scan every blade of grass before agreeing to train on it. If it wasn't clean, we'd move on and the search for uh, clean grass to play on would start anew. My intense dislike for the common endures to this day to the extent that I find myself blocked by the official Clapham Common One Twitter account. A source of irritation to me, alleviated somewhat, I must admit, by the fact that the more prestigious Clapham Common handle was nabbed by some enterprising New Yorker that's only ever tweeted 32 times in five years. Two decades on from having, uh, sorry, two decades on from those interminable training sessions in the park, I had arrived at that police station having utterly failed to make it either as a priest or a footballer. My dad had already been missing for a fortnight and I had done nothing to look for him. I was still very much grieving for my mum and I was in no real rush to have it confirmed I'd lost a second parent in two years. Stopping people in the street to show them my dad's picture, turning up at A&E departments in South London to ask if anyone recognised the man on the poster was not an easy thing for a low-key guy like me. As August gave way to September, we finally got news from the police. A body had been found on Clapham Common the same day my dad had disappeared. The deceased's retro sportswear suggested they'd been out jogging and the lack of any form of ID on him, along perhaps with the low-res image on the posters, went some way towards explaining why it had taken much of the summer to conclude our search. I promised myself that same night that if any family member ever went missing again, I'd never again scrimp on the missing posters the way I had with my dad. And for those first few years after my dad passed away in and around the last of five nose jobs, I was finally making some decent money and almost wanted someone to disappear during this period just so I could step in and offer to pay for expensive posters. People would note the difference in quality, the clearer image, the thicker density of the paper. He's turned a corner, they would say. Should have seen the state of the missing posters for his dad. No wonder they took so long to find him. By the time my dad's middle brother, in an eerie reenactment of what happened with my dad, also disappeared in 2008, my earnings had dropped dramatically as the Great Recession quickly swallowed me up. Once again, I found myself circulating cheap posters of a family member that, like the statues often erected outside football grounds, bore little resemblance to the person it was meant to represent. It disappointed me that no one ever disappeared when my work was selling and I had some money to spare. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, next up we have Mark Nash, who's published four novels and four collections of flash fiction, and his fifth published mid-September. His work looks to push the boundaries of language and narrative form. He works with video makers to make non-linear stories in kinetic typography, and he works and lives in London. Please welcome to the stage, Mark Nash. 
Thank you. I'm going to do two stories from my uh, new collection, which is out next week. This is called Echoes. The sure-handed technician swished the probe across my abdomen like an air hockey disc. As she was sketching my child for me, drawing her from noiseless sound waves and silent rebounds, bouncing sonar off her budding tissue, having the echoes pulse back through the swell of me and into the machine's imaging stick, pixels of my little pixie as her head is fully rendered, the outline of her arms expertly plotted by passage through the shallow fathoms, even her fingers floating like sargassum in the void are charted through the sink and swim of the sonic undulations, the topography of my daughter, that slowly burgeoning coral reef cropping out from my amniotic seabed. The minute motions of her heart are as yet too small to be picked out in electronic modes, and this being only the first draft of the overlay of more detailed pentimento compositions to come. But even without a monitor, I could see, feel, and most significantly hear my own heartstrings go bing as her image became limned in light, emerging from the shadows of me. The technician squeezes some more jelly on my belly. It felt similar to when he used to pull out of me onto my stomach, terrified that we might launch new life. But a reproduction up there on screen suggests he got his timing wrong, that we were arrhythmic, out of step with one another. And when I relayed my suspicions of generation within me, he was off like a torpedo. There were no returning echoes from my plaintive pleas launched in the direction of his retreating form. And though he was a complete dog, my entreaties appeared to be shrill beyond any audible frequency. But that's okay. I have someone really close now who is held wrapped by the softly lapping waves of my body and the song that they make. Our call and response established here will be for all time. It was the same sonographer, but this time her piloting seemed less assured. There was a sense of choppy urgency to the sweeps over my distended stomach, and I scoped on the monitor that some of the pulses were not receiving the requisite echoes back. Her rudimentary tissues were too weak to bat them gently around. The heart was more visible, but barely fluttering. They took me from lying prone under the ultrasound and folded me in half, onto a seat in front of a consultant. He was speaking to me, but I couldn't hear his words. Wrong frequency for my brain to hold, I guess. A siren only I could hear was reverberating in my head. They depth-charged her with medical payloads, and when that didn't find their target, they brought in an abominable bombardier with a suction duct to scuttle her little half-built vessel while she was still in harbour. And every day now, I rub my hand over my belly, the trenches and the depressions. Yet the seabed there is still. No echoes are ever returned to me. Thank you. <laughs> Author copies of books are not what they used to be. Either that or uh, Amazon's uh, delivery drone has been shot down over the literary badlands of Highgate and Crouch Hill. This one is about a fallen angel. It's called Wings. He jacked the spike into the scorched blisters around his groin and depressed the stopper. As the liquid nectar palpated his arteries and shuttered his eyes, wings sputtered out from his back. 
Some loose feathers drifted haltingly to the ground in their wake. His wings gaped open feebly, revealing gouges in the plumage. He flopped onto his belly, uncumbersomely drew his battered wings to engulf himself. The drug trickling through his tapered veins was taking him from butterfly back through to cocoon. See, the drug still loved him. When he had first shot up, his thick, proud wings enabled him to soar above the treetops. And then he spanned mountains and bent the wind to the will of his graceful flapping. But now he could barely support the weight of his ragged feathers. They kept him pressed to the ground rather than elevating him above the clouds. When he used to glide, there was no sound at all. Yet now there was the agitated fluttering of the breeze ruffling through his denuded feathers. Or maybe it was the sound of his teeth chattering. Since his wings could no longer prevent him feeling chilled to the bone as the chemical spur bluntedly vacated his blood. More larval grub now than cocoon even. The narcotic had quickly ceased embracing him. He heard the sound of flies' wings as they frolicked within his weeping sores. As the opiate took its leave of him, his ears were filled with a loud whooshing. More wings, the percussion of devils thrashing their leathery appendages with delirious anticipation, while those other angels glumly cupped their chins in their hands and silently retracted their own gossamer distensions. They would not be able to catch him anymore. Thank you. <laughs>